Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Asset Allocation Report for March 14, 2023. Investors, be aware. Interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve may not be enough on their own to subdue inflation. The Fed might need some help. Confluence market strategist Patrick Farron Hernandez joins us today to discuss other key inflation battlefronts that do deserve our attention. Patrick, what should we pay attention to that maybe we're not? Well, first, thanks for having me on the show, Phil. To answer your question, we as investors really should be thinking about everything that can affect economic growth, inflation, and asset prices. But of course, that's easier said than done. It's so easy to focus on just one or two things that are important and easy to understand and measure, like the Federal Reserve's benchmark interest rate. In our latest asset allocation report, we're trying to remind investors that even though the Fed's monetary policies are important, there are also other aspects of economic policy that we should keep an eye on as well. Country's economic policy is made up of much, much more than its monetary policy. What can we learn from the successful fight against inflation in the early 1980s? Well, that's a great example of what we're talking about. Ever since the quick decline of inflation at the beginning of the 1980s, investors and economists have ascribed that phenomenon to then-Fed Chairman Paul Volcker and his willingness to hike the Fed Fund's interest rate to stratospheric levels in order to wring inflation out of the economy. Like many myths, this one is clear and simple, but it's not necessarily accurate and complete. Investors forget that at the very time that Volcker was hiking hiking interest rates, the federal government had already begun deregulating a number of industries, such as transportation. As the Reagan years progressed, deregulation spread even further, and globalization really took hold. We think that all these different policy developments together helped bring down inflation. You can't just describe the defeat of inflation to Paul Volcker and his type monetary policy. Patrick, you mentioned in your report four areas that are part of the policy mix that we should pay attention to. They are fiscal policy, regulatory policy, industrial policy, and social policy, and you suggest all play a role in the inflation battle. Which of these is the most important and why? Well, besides monetary policy, we think fiscal policy has the biggest impact on inflation, at least in the near term. And by fiscal policy, we mean all the decisions about government spending levels, the allocation of spending to different areas, tax rates, types of taxes, and the like. Federal fiscal policy is most important since federal outlays equal at least one-fifth of all U.S. economic output, and the federal budget deficit currently totals about 5% of GDP. And the federal budget deficit currently stands at about 5% of GDP. But even state and local government fiscal policies will have some impact on overall demand and supply in the economy and how high inflation is. Well, how is the federal deficit trending lately? Well, for many years before the pandemic, the federal deficit had been in the range of about 4% of GDP. It then blew out to almost 20% of GDP in the midst of the pandemic when federal outlays shot up to cushion the economy and tax receipts dried up. 
But by the middle of 2022, the economy continued to recover from the crisis and the deficit had narrowed to about 4% of GDP again. But because of new spending initiatives, the growing outlays on Social Security and Medicare and other factors, the deficit this fiscal year is expected to expand to over 5% of GDP and then it's expected to keep worsening over the next couple of years. Patrick, it makes sense to me on the face of it that reducing spending may be effective in curbing the deficit. But I suspect that when you focus on specific measures, the calculations might not be so simple. For instance, the current student loan forgiveness plan now before the Supreme Court. Now, ignoring the social arguments on both sides of this issue, but keying on the economics alone if we can. This is an expensive plan that we can assume would increase the deficit. But at the same time, if the plan does not become reality, 43 million Americans may have to begin making average payments of $400 a month as soon as this year. Now, that's money that wouldn't be spent on products made by American industries, and that could impact tax receipts. And we can assume that some, perhaps many debtors, wouldn't be able to pay, and and perhaps social welfare costs might increase as a result. Bottom line, wouldn't the absence of a forgiveness plan also increase the deficit, although perhaps by not as much? Well, I think what you're describing is a great example of how all the various aspects of fiscal policy can have complex effects on the economy. There can be different second-order effects. A policy can fall on some people or businesses and not on others, etc. What that means is that summarizing fiscal policy with just the one figure of the budget deficit as share of GDP is a bit simplistic. It's a useful figure to summarize how expansive fiscal policy is, but it doesn't capture every nuance of the policy like you mentioned. Let's move on to regulatory policy. Now, as an economist, how do you measure the presence of regulations? Well, measuring or summarizing regulatory policy is even harder than measuring and summarizing fiscal policy. Rules that say you can't do this or you have to do this aren't easy to distill down to one number. All the same, we think a very rough measure of regulatory strictness is the number of pages in the Federal Register, which is the official compendium of all the government's rules and regulations. The idea is that the more pages in the register, the more extensive regulations on the economy are. Well, how are we trending? The Federal Register exploded in the 1960s and 1970s, right at the time that inflation began to take off. The page count peaked at roughly 85,000 when President Reagan was first elected. But then, with Reagan's deregulation program, the page count fell sharply to less than 50,000 in the mid-1980s. Now, the page count then trended upward again until it essentially regained that 1980 peak in roughly the year 2000 and it's remained at essentially that level ever since. So by this measure, you might say that regulation of the U.S. economy is now once again roughly as burdensome and costly as in the late 1970s. Patrick, I'm I'm thinking of the recent cost of train derailments. 
Sure. Just as the budget deficit is a crude measure of how expansive fiscal policy really is, the page count of the Federal Register is a crude measure of regulation. It simply can't capture all the trade-offs between regulating and not regulating a particular activity. But again, we think it does provide a sense of how extensive regulation has become and how much that regulation might be raising the cost of production in the economy, even if that regulation might have significant benefits as well. You mentioned industrial policies, such as promoting the expansion of new industries to boost product supply. How can this be seen as an inflation-fighting tool? Well, the idea is that companies may be reluctant to invest in new plant and equipment or in a whole new industry if they perceive it to be too risky or uncertain. Industrial policy can give companies assurances and incentives to carry through that investment, potentially bringing down the cost of the product over time. A lot of the subsidies for green technologies like windmills and solar cells had that aim over the last couple of decades. The idea is is that government spending or preferential rules and protections can essentially push out the supply curve, which should help contain production costs. Moving on to social policy, one example might be expanding the labor force, which could limit wage increases. Demographics are not in our favor, and immigration reform seems unlikely. Is there any hope on this front? Well, in our report, we list this as a potential way to address inflation, but we note that its impact is likely to be felt only over the long term. It can take a long time for education reform to have a material impact on improving young workers' skills, and incentivizing couples to have more kids wouldn't improve the labor supply for at least 16 years, if you come up with effective incentives. Nevertheless, we have seen some countries improve their labor force participation rates through various workforce policies. In Japan, for example, former Prime Minister Abe's policies appear to have been successful in sharply boosting the number of people in the labor force, at least temporarily easing the labor supply shortages that come with an aging society. Deglobalization, which is going on now, seems to be an inflationary force too big for the Federal Reserve alone, is it? We do think that deglobalization is going to be a major inflationary force out into the future. As companies shift their supply chains to friendlier, higher-cost countries closer to home, and as they make their production processes more resilient to account for the greater geopolitical risks of the future, then output likely is going to be more expensive. That's a key reason why we think that even though U.S. inflation will moderate over the coming months, it probably won't get back down to the Fed's target of 2%. Patrick, as we sum up, how would you describe the overall tilt of today's non-monetary policies in the United States? We judge that U.S. non-monetary policies are still inflationary. Expanding fiscal deficits, onerous regulation, deglobalization, and the promotion of more resilient supply chains all put upward pressure on inflation, making it tougher for the Fed to bring down price pressures merely by hiking interest rates. Another key implication is that if the Fed unexpectedly abandons its current tightening program and pivots too early to looser monetary policy, it could spark panic regarding the path of future inflation. 
So as we look at this overall tilt, does it appear that the Fed may continue to be, in effect, the lone ranger in this fight against inflation? Well, Fed Chairman Powell and his board all seem pretty intent on hiking interest rates as aggressively as needed to bring down inflation. So as of right now, it does look like they're willing to play the role of Lone Ranger. They don't say much about the inflationary impact of other aspects of economic policy. They talk and act like monetary policy is the only game in town, and they show every sign of continuing to tighten in the near term. Patrick, how might Lone Ranger status caused the Fed to act unwisely. One thing that we're watching is the risk that continued monetary tightening could break something in some corner of the financial system and spark a worse economic contraction than currently expected. In that case, we wonder how much political will the Fed policymakers would have to stay their course. In an environment where the other aspects of economic policy are inflationary, the Fed's sudden abandonment of tight monetary policy would likely spark panic regarding the future of inflation, and that would likely have big negative impacts on the financial markets. The worst case scenario, if inflation does spiral out of control, would be a big bond sell-off, I assume, major pressure on stocks. For investors, holding cash certainly wouldn't be the answer. And, And pouring assets into commodities seems risky, since they do have a history of volatility. What do you suggest? And is it possible investors may encounter a world where limiting losses instead of locking in gains becomes the dominant goal? Well, limiting potential losses could make a lot of sense in this scenario, so cash and shorter-duration bonds could be an important cushion in investors' portfolios. In addition, the threat of currency debasement would likely give a boost to gold. Indeed, those are some of the key themes in our most recent asset allocation strategies. Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Be aware that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.